Trigger warning. The following episode contains material around sexual assault and sexual misconduct that may be disturbing or traumatizing to some audiences. Listener discretion is advised. While already a well-known name on campus to most, for those who don't know him, Jonathan Vaughn is an advocate against sexual abuse and a survivor of Dr. Robert Anderson. In October of 2021, Vaughn, followed by a swath of fellow victims and supporters, began the Hail to the Victims movement by camping out in front of the university's president's house to demand university accountability for the negligence that perpetuated former athletic Dr. Anderson's abuse. To this date, more than 1,050 victims have come forward. Just last month in February of 2022, Vaughn was granted an honorary Bachelor of Justice degree by UMich faculty to commemorate his work and to celebrate 100 days of protest. However, in the afternoon of March 7th, 150 days after the protest began, the entire campsite stationed in front of the president's house on South University was removed by Michigan administration. In this week's episode of the Daily Weekly, we talk to John Vaughn himself. Then we'll bring you coverage of the protest that ensued the campsite's removal. I'm your host, Sophia Terencio. Stay tuned. Senior editor Isaac Mintz and content producer Ella Price spoke with John Vaughn about the future of the Hail to the Victims movement, as well as his run for public office. Here's what John Vaughn had to say. I'm Isaac Mintz. Uh, I'm reporting live from uh, the Michigan Daily. I'm sitting here with my colleague Ella and John, thanks for coming on. Thank you guys for having me. We want to start this interview with a reference to a tweet you made earlier this week from March 7th. What have you done? What have you done? And can you walk us through this event and what had occurred on that day? Wow. Uh, I had found out that uh, the University of Michigan illegally confiscated all of the items at the camp on their own volition uh, because my personal attorney and I had conversations with the assistant attorney for the city of Ann Arbor and was telling him that my birthday is the 12th. Uh, we're going to do a celebration. I'm going to be able to say goodbye, you know, to this phase to so many students and professors. Uh, my attorney in this case had told both of Michigan's internal attorneys and the external attorneys that this is when I'd be leaving. And they took it upon themselves to go onto Ann Arbor property because from the curb to the street, what a lot of people don't realize is Ann Arbor's jurisdiction. It's not the University of Michigan's jurisdiction. So I was never protesting on Michigan property. Michigan has always been a pro First Amendment university. So for them to do that, um, I felt it's almost like they kicked, they kicked the bear and they pulled the tail of the tiger all at the same time. We were willing and we're ready to move the camp. I don't think they realized the fight that was ignited that day. And, you know, as, as I've spoken of so many times, Trené Gonzar as one of my best and dearest friends. And there was a point in her victim impact statement where she says to Larry Nasser, what have you done? What have you done? That was 
It wasn't a threat. It was a promise. Michigan, you have no idea that insulting, disrespectful act of what that has fueled and how we're going to respond. What was the significance of uh, that moment for you? When did you discover this originally and who were you with? I was by myself. I got a call from my attorney at 4.45 on Monday. At first, I'm shocked because, one, it's at the end of business, so we don't even know what's going on. I, I don't even know if I was so much angry as it was exacerbated. It's like, once again, Michigan is Michigan. Like, they, they continue to operate in the shadows, thinking that, and especially in this situation, they're above the law. They're a lawless institution. They will do whatever they choose to do whenever they choose to do it at anyone's peril as long as they do what they want to do. And I think that was the thing that was frustrating me uh, the most um, over the, you know, that evening. And then cooler heads prevail. You know, I mean, this is the thing that really kind of broke my heart. I did not want any of the students or professors to think that we just left. And without saying, you know, goodbye, Um, there was so many relationships that we've developed that are so important and near and dear to us that we were concerned that they would feel like we abandoned them. And that's something that we would never do. And going back to the beginning a bit, when did this movement start in your eyes? And did you ever envision yourself being in this leadership position? I didn't. Um, I would have to say I'm going well, I'm getting to the two-year anniversary of what now has completely changed my life. After my 50th birthday, my best friend and teammate sent me the email telling me about what was going on in Michigan and everything that Dr. Anderson had done. No one, male or female, wants to carry, um, let's say, the scarlet letter of being a rape victim. But I wanted to make sure that in, in looking at how Michigan has controlled the narrative and made villains of the victims up to that point, how Michigan State did the Nassar victims, I was like, well, there's no way that I'm going to let that happen. But I was not going to ever be a John Doe. And so I know going into the protests, I was like, this protest, we're going to change the world. But I didn't have a plan on how to change the world. I didn't have a plan. That's why I went out there by myself. I didn't want to put any other survivors in jeopardy. I just knew that we needed to change the narrative that was being spoken. We had had enough. When they disrespected us by giving Slissel um, a 3% raise at that Board of Regents meeting, at that point, I was like, I'm done. It's time to fight them on the front lines. I never expected that, you know, I would be the captain of this team, so to speak. You've also been very outspoken about survivor stories that don't typically get told, particularly regarding gender and race, which has made this a really unique movement. What impact do you hope that sharing these experiences has? The biggest impact that I hope is that we complete not only the color wheel, but the sexist wheel of what the face of sexual assault, rape, sexual violence looks like. Because the numbers are just staggering. It's like, just like everybody has a cancer story, everybody has a Me Too story. So that's one thing. Um, Hopefully we change the world in having no more taboo or secret 
places that men, women, or anyone, no matter what race, color, creed, that sexual assault or that, that any type of sexual trauma has to be kept a secret. Because I also realized that the body keeps the score. And if you, you know, conceal your trauma or if you, you know, um, you know, push it down, if you will, that also, you know, adds to your mental health and getting out, speaking out, getting help for your trauma only helps you become a fuller person. You know, in, in leading this movement, you've inspired uh, countless individuals to come forth with their own stories of sexual assault. And, you know, you're going through your own processing of that trauma now, and, and you're going on your own quest to try and heal yourself. And um, I'm curious if, if you've learned anything or, you know, about, about your journey, about your story. Um, and even in these last few months, if um, there's anything that you'd like to say about that journey to fellow survivors. We're all stronger than we think we are. The light is always better than the dark. Find the light in your life. Find your, your centers. Find your true north. Find your lighthouse and, and get to that because sexual assault and trauma is a very, very dark place. You, in the past, you mentioned uh, specific approaches that the university might be able to take uh, to counter this. And do you think that there might be a future in a university approach that, that might specifically uh, approach trauma? As it currently exists now, because I don't think that trauma or student and faculty safety is a true priority for the university and the leadership that is currently exists there. But I think that I've seen and had conversations with more diverse diversity in a very concentrated period of time than I thought I ever would and maybe ever had in my entire life. And I feel like there's different populations within the University of Michigan that is, wants to take back its rights and its voice and its power the change would not come from the current Board of Regents or the Office of the Presidency. The change will come because of the solidarity and the speaking in the multiple voices of the student body, the faculty and supporters, whether they're brands, sponsors, boosters or whatnot, that community saying, wait, we must change. We must fix this cancer, that cancerous culture that exists at our beloved university. That's where my hope is. It's not currently with the current administration because they've shown time and time again, even this week, they re-traumatized me by doing what they did in the way they did it. But I also don't think they understand the nature of the foe that they're fighting. I don't know anyone, and I was out there almost 150 days, and I don't see anybody coming to stand in defense of the university. I see more silent enablers that are standing by, bystanders that are complicit because of their silence, but I don't see anybody standing up for the university. I think it's more so individuals and entities are standing down, but I will never be afraid 
of a brand that I helped build. You, you mentioned specifically the current leadership is not taking the cultural approaches that are necessary in order to carry out the voice of you know, what you've been asking for. And what does the future of that of this movement look like for you? What does the future of carrying out those cultural asks look like? You know, bringing and partnering with sexual assault advocacy groups like Avalon Healing that are opening up satellite offices because the institutions within the institution have dramatically failed the students and the professors to continue to educate just to be a part of some of the conversations that I've had from professors to students and all these different groups, that moment is near in which the entire student body or the majority of the student body and the majority of the professors and the majority of the lecturers say no more. At the end of the day, we all love Michigan for various reasons. And the Michigan we fell in love with for most of us is not the Michigan that exists today. And I think there is a desperate need for them to be held accountable because what they put out there as their brands of leaders and best, those that know, know that they're not acting as leaders and best in so many different ways. So when it comes to university leadership, what culture do you hope that you can bring to the Board of Regents and what would you like to see changed in the university leadership? To be transparent, to be accountable, if not for anything else, look at the tuition that is paid by these individuals to not place such a high, like Michigan is a brand that you can raise capital on its own, but all money is not good money. You have some human rights atrocities going on at the University of Michigan as it pertains to student health, as it pertains to student hunger. This is Michigan. You have $18 billion in your endowment. How is it that we settle for that? Reports, and those are the ones that reported of sexual assault or sexual violence or rape with so little arrest, second, third, fourth, fifth chances of professors' conduct. Stop being a do as I say, not as I do, hypocritical leadership of the number one public institution in the world. And so you've been on the front lines since Friday, October 8th. Um, where are you at with all of this, you know, this far in the journey? How are you doing emotionally and personally? Emotionally, I think I'm stronger than I've ever been and more vulnerable than I've ever been. And by Saturday morning, when I go back out to the camp, Michigan is going to see a protest unlike anything they've ever seen. I am healthy. I have peace. And I'm channeling more of the stories and the voices and the emotions of these last five months more than I think I ever have. We're going to take the fight to another level and demand by our actions, by our transparency, that Michigan either affects change or change will be affected upon it. In previous interviews, you've mentioned that writing a book has saved your life. And we're just wondering, um, from this experience, what have you learned about yourself, your fellow survivors, and the people of this university? And is there anything you'd like to share with others about your experience? I realized what sexual assault was to me, sexual violence. 
and being able to articulate it. For me, it was a ever shrinking island. There are many, many times that you feel like you're alone. Uh, you feel like people don't believe you or the shame and the grief of your trauma. And the biggest lesson that I know is no survivor should ever stand alone. And you keep going, like, like never give up on hope. If the first person you tell doesn't believe you, you go to the second. And you keep going until someone believes you. The strength of the survivor community is stronger and louder than we all would have suspected. And so tell your truth, because I hear you and I stand with you. John, this has been a great interview. Um, we have one last closing question for you. And with the tone that was set at the beginning of the week by the university, you know, you had a narrative for what the goodbye would look like for you. And we were curious, what does getting the goodbye that you were looking for look like now? Right now, we're only concentrating about reestablishing our hello. I'm not even thinking about goodbye at this point. I will tell you this, that we will be back at 815 South University, and we will be at multiple places on that university from now on. Our presence is growing. Our movement is growing. That there probably never will be a goodbye, because there will be remnants of this movement and our commitment as survivors who can't change anything that happened to us to be there for current students and students in the future. And that's why we're doing the work in sexual assault advocacy to bring true advocates that work for the victim, not the institution. So I don't think we'll ever say goodbye. It just might be a see you later. Well, John, thank you so much for taking some time out of your day to speak with us and for all of the hard work you've been doing on the University of Michigan campus and beyond. We really, really appreciate it. Up next, content producer Sky Lee brings you ground coverage of the protest in front of the president's house on March 12th. Better in the first wave of the settlement that Michigan is trying to continue, you know, keep us chained to our trauma. So I'm doing one minute. In solidarity with the thousand people. Yeah, yeah. Cool, thank you. So that's how it came out to We're going to take a moment, a couple minutes of silence, because there's been at least five of my brothers and sisters, survivors from Anderson and past in the last two years. It was just a moment of silence. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of The Daily Weekly. To keep up to date on the latest University of Michigan news, visit michigandaily.com and follow us on Spotify at The Daily Weekly. This episode was produced by managing editor Doug McClure, executive producer Kayla Shang, senior podcast editors Sophia Terenzio and Isaac Mintz, and content producers Rhea Basarkar, Hannah Devereaux, Sky Lee, Jack Sweeting, and Ella Price, with audio engineering and composition from Julian Chuncholo and Omid Shahidi. The Daily's theme song was composed by Gibson Gillette Barrons. Oh, 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 oh,